Welcome to Light from the Black Box from the Sheen Center for Thought and Culture in New York City. I'm Valerie Smaldone. Rock and roll legend Tommy James recently appeared in a new interview series at the Sheen Center. Tommy's story about his success in the music business and the mobster who was behind it is documented in his recent autobiography, Me, the Mob, and the Music. In front of a live audience, I asked Tommy about the tremendous burden of carrying this story around for so many years. That's quite true. Um, This was very therapeutic for me, uh, the whole process. Of course, the reason it's therapeutic and the reason I was concerned about it is because, unbeknownst to most people, uh, Roulette Records was not only a uh, functioning record company, but it was also a front for the Genovese crime family. And so this made life real interesting for us. And um, honestly, uh, trying to have a career in rock and roll with this very dark and sinister story going on behind us that we couldn't say a word about. Uh, was kind of known in the business, uh, a few of the distributors and radio guys, and the guys that were getting payoffs, you know. But um, uh, honestly, uh, it was a pretty well-kept secret. And uh, certainly the affiliation... Uh, with the Genovese family was. Um, uh, Morris Levy, who was the head of the label, was right out of the movies. Uh, he talked like this, you know. And his partner up there was uh, Tommy Eberly, who ended up being the head of the Genovese family after Vito Genovese was killed in 1969, and or, or died in 1969. So uh, all of this stuff we were witness to, but we couldn't talk about so when we first started writing the book, uh, my co-author, uh, Martin Fitzpatrick, and myself, we uh, actually uh, were going to write a book about the hits and about the music. A, and, us- a usual memoir yeah, of music, nice yeah. Mu- it would have been interesting, right. you know, but we really didn't feel that we could touch the mob stuff. Plus, all these guys were still walking around, so, you know, they were all 106, but uh, they were still walking around. We figured maybe I could outrun them, but that was about it. So uh, we kind of put it on a shelf for a while. And then after the last of the roulette regulars, as I call them, died, uh, the last one was uh, Giganti, who, remember, he used to walk around oh, the Greenwich Village with the bathroom. <laughs> yes, yes. He passed away in uh, December of '05. We, we We felt that we could finish the book. We also felt that if we didn't tell the rest of, of the real story, that we were really weren't telling the story. We were just uh, being super superficial, and we we really needed to tell the rest of that. So at least I did. So um, we finished it and uh, got all the uh, names right and and told it as fairly as as we could. We finished the book uh, in 2010 and immediately got a deal with Simon & Schuster for the book. And that was very flattering because generally they do presidential memoirs and things like that. They don't usually get involved in the pop stuff. Uh, But they did with this. Following the release of the well-received book, Hollywood came a-calling. It's going to be a movie, and uh, it's being produced by Barbara DeFina, who produced Goodfellas and uh, Casino and... uh, Oh, a bunch of great movies. Hugo, a couple of years ago with Martin Scorsese. In fact, she's, she used to be married to Martin Scorsese and mm-hmm. did several of his movies. And uh, she's this petite little thing about this tall 
And uh, you would never in a million years figure her for uh, making these kind of movies, you know, the blood and guts mob movies. So I'm getting a, a hell of an education from uh, Barbara, and uh, she's working very closely with me and my manager, Carol Ross. Long story short, they, they, it, it's going to be a film, and uh, uh, the screenplay has just been finished by Matthew Stone, and uh, the director is next, and then the casting, and so I'm watching all this come together, and it really is quite amazing. Let's talk to the story mm -hmm. of this Morris Levy and Roulette Records and mm -hmm. the time frame. We know that you were a fairly successful musician back in the Midwest, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, this song, Hanky Panky, fell into your lap. How? Well, Hanky Panky was a song that I had heard another group play. I was at a bar one night illegally. <laughs> I was like 15 years old. I was in high school. Uh, had my cover band, The, uh, the Shondells, and we, um, you know, played the, the gymnasiums and the Elks clubs and those kind of places. I wanted to make records. That's just all I ever wanted to do. We actually had two small label deals before I was out of high school. First one kind of came and went, and, and that got us on the jukeboxes and stuff. But I, was, I worked in a record shop after school and uh, on the weekends, and... One day, uh, Jack Douglas, from, who was a disc jockey, a local disc jockey from WNIL in, in Niles, Michigan, came in and asked me if I would consider making records for him. And I said, uh, took me about a second and a half, I said, yeah. <laughs> so one of the four sides that I recorded for him was this song that I had heard another group play called Hanky Panky. And I couldn't remember the words. I remembered My Baby Does a Hanky Panky. That was about it. So that's kind of what, what was in the... And that's about the size of the song, six, right? Six, <laughs> six words. The record uh, came out and was a local hit. You know, it was uh, in about four square blocks. And uh, we had no distribution. Uh, this was in 1964. I was, uh, I was a, a junior in high school. So the record kind of came and went. And we were disappointed, but we couldn't do much because we were we were stranded there in Niles, Michigan. So in 65, I graduated from high school. I took my band on the road and we're playing a, a, a dumpy little bar in Janesville, Wisconsin in early 66. And right in the middle of our two weeks, the guy goes belly up. He <laughs> goes, goes broke and the IRS shuts him down. And we, tail between our legs, go back home to Niles. And so I figured it's over, and, you know, why am I doing this? And I almost took a job at John's Bargain Store, <laughs> came this close. But I figured, you know, selling coat hangers in Preparation H really wasn't my future. So. Could have been, though. And uh, so I uh, ended up taking my band out, out on the road again. And uh, when I came back, uh, I was home for about a week and a half, and I get a phone call that changed my life. Uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this, now this is early 1966 now, I get a call from, uh, first of all, from, from Jack Douglas, who said, stay right there. They've been trying to call me. And I uh, get a call from Pittsburgh. And Hanky Panky, this record that I had made two years before, was sitting at number one in Pittsburgh. I mean, that is just a, a miracle. One, one of the local DJs uh, owned a record shop. They had this underground record business in Pittsburgh where they'd take old records that nobody had ever heard, bootleg them, sell them locally, make a bunch of money, and not tell anybody. They did that with Hanky Panky, pulled it out of a record cemetery. Just a bin so, somewhere. Yeah. So uh, the record, uh, suddenly, they, they bootleg 80,000 of them, sell them in 10 days. 
and the record is sitting at number one in Pittsburgh. Now, that's a regional breakout. That's a major market. So I went there uh, at the request of the local promoter. Uh, two weeks later, uh, we're in New York uh, selling the master to uh, what ended up being roulette. The red lights should have gone off right there. And that's because when they got to New York, every record company wanted a meeting and was interested in Tommy and the group. We got a thumbs up from Atlantic, from Columbia, Epic, RCA. Remember Kama Sutra Records? Yeah. Uh, the last place we took the record to was uh, Roulette. So I went to bed that night thinking, oh, this is so great. We're probably going to go with, you know, one of the big corporate labels, you know, RCA or... CBS or somebody important and so uh, I went to bed feeling great about nine o'clock the next morning the phone starts ringing and it was all the record companies who had said yes the day before called up one after another and said listen Tom we got a pass and I said what do you mean you got a pass I thought we had a deal finally Jerry Wexler at Atlantic told us the truth that Morris Levy from Roulette Records had called up all the other labels and said uh uh, Morris from Roulette had called him up and said, This is my freaking record. Back off. <laughs> and they did, even, even Columbia. So we were apparently going to be on Roulette Records. <laughs> and uh, that was the first offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, that's how it happened. And then, of course, Morris in Roulette took Hanky Panky to number one all over the world. And it was, ended up being the biggest record of the summer of 66. Well, there's no question that you garnered fame, but you made no money. Well, that's true. <laughs> and the reason that's you made no truth. money is what? Crime doesn't pay. <laughs> As Tommy and his guitarist, Jonathan Ash, prepared to sing for the sold-out crowd at Sheen Center, Tommy told me what it was like when he heard his song on the radio for the first time. It was a magical, it was the most wonderful feeling in the world. I, there's nothing to describe. See, I happen to think that there's nothing more exciting than an exploding hit record to this day. I don't think, because it's, you hear it everywhere at the same time. And um, so uh, when Hanky Panky came out, it was the most magical feeling in the world. It just was, I can't even describe it. And the funny part is, you know, listening for your record on the radio... You learn everybody else's record, too. You know, so all those songs are like one big song to me, uh, the summer of 66. It's like falling in love. You never, it never feels the same again. Mm -hmm. What's so amazing about Hanky Panky is how, how nothing it is, really, and how everything it is. You know what I mean? It was just one of those amazing little ditties that just uh, uh, resonated, and you never know. I, the funny part is I've tried to re-record it, you can't do it. You can't make it sound that bad. No matter how, because, you know, hit records really are, are accidents, uh, just like Hanky Panky was. It was uh, wonderful, like I say, a miracle. And I really do believe the good Lord had everything to do with that record. And the longer I'm in this business, the more I realize that. But what I really am saying is that hit records are like Motown, for example. Mm -hmm. Bad wiring, lousy mics cheap echo chambers, and incredible talent. So, I mean, that, that's what Motown was. And um, so many records were recorded like that, especially back, yeah. you know, in the, in the early 60s and middle 60s before the technology really poured into the studio. So this song exploded nationally. Yes. And you were with Roulette, and Morris Levy was the godfather. Yes. And he brought you fame, 
But about how much money did he not give you? He owed you. Well, when they figured it out in the end, between 30 and 40 million dollars. That, you know, honestly, I think if I'd have had it back then, I think I would have destroyed myself with it. I really do. I, I was in a pretty bad place. Honestly, uh, uh, it, was, it was really interesting. We had to constantly decide whether we should stay at roulette because we were having this incredible success there. Just one hit after another. You know, we ended up with 36 chart records at, at roulette. You know, 23 went gold. This amazing machine just was all working. The executives there, the, the, the radio guys, everything. The whole, everything, all the ducks were in a row. Do we, do we break that up and maybe take our life in our hands? Because we knew what had happened to Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers had a string of hits on roulette, honeycomb, kisses sweeter than wine. Uh, he defied them. He went after his royalties, even though they said, don't go after your royalties, and took him to court. And uh, in the middle 60s, he was left for dead out on an L.A. freeway. They beat him, they thought, to death. He was pulled over by what, they th what he thought was cops. And they weren't cops. They were Genovese people. They, uh, they left him for dead, and he was never the same. And uh, he was paralyzed on one side. And, you know, if he hadn't been so athletic, uh, he would have died. And we were very aware that's the kind of people we were dealing with and that uh, you don't want to push those buttons. So on one hand, the success we were having there was truly amazing, and we were trusted with million-dollar budgets. And on the other, we weren't getting royalties. We were getting royalties from... I mean, we were making a lot of money from touring, a lot of money from BMI, broadcast music. You get a royalty every time mm -hmm. your song is played. And uh, from commercials and a lot of other things. But mechanical royalties were just not going to happen. And also our publishing was tied up, which is owner of the copyrights, owner, ownership of the songs. Mm -hmm. That was just turned over to roulette, and we weren't going to see any of that. So that's just the way it was. And, and they, as I say, 30 to $40 million when right. we figured it out. What's fascinating about this book, and, and I do hope that you'll pick it up if you haven't already, is that Tommy has this love-hate relationship with Morris Levy. He abhors him because he's been abused, he's been enslaved by the company, and yet at the same time had a very strong attachment to him, which we're going to discuss in just a moment. But first... Are you going to sell something? No. <laughs> I think it's time... <laughs> I think it's time for another song because okay. there's a song that we discussed that has a slow feel to it and a little faster feel right. to it. Well, th this, this song was uh, very interesting for us for, for so many reasons. It, reasons. it was strategically important because it came at, at just the right moment. Uh, uh, we changed, I changed producers. I changed studios. We changed styles. Uh, I changed members of the band, things like that. So it was a big change. And um, the fast version went to number one, was also number one all over the world. And, and uh, in, um, this was in the beginning of 67. And for the movie, we're doing a very slow version, slow acoustic version. It's going to be closing credits for the film. It's so different because at the very end of this movie, Morris dies. And I have so many mixed feelings about this because... On one hand, if it wasn't for Morris, there wouldn't have been a Tommy James. On the other hand, it was like an abusive father who, mm -hmm. um, you know, beats the kid but sends him to college, you know. So it's, it's, it's weird. And uh, so I had a lot of mixed feelings, and um, I, that kind of comes through at the end. This, uh, 
very last scene where Morris has passed away and I get into the car. I never have a chance to say goodbye to him. And it's in the car after a show and I have this sort of imaginary conversation with him and at the end of the conversation the limo takes off into the Chicago skyline at night and this song comes on. I like that. Beautiful. I did a little research about Mr. Levy, and I stumbled across a uh, YouTube video of a Today Show interview from 1986. And on By the, the way, that interview you're talking about was right after he'd been arrested. Correct. And he was trying to let his mob associates know that he wasn't going to rat on them. That's right. You will do a great impression, but I just want to read... Uh, because I can see it, <laughs> that Brian Ross interviewed Morris Levy uh, the day after he was arrested. And uh, this, this was the exchange. Mr. Levy, Fed authorities were describing you yesterday as the godfather of the American music business. Between the mob and music business, what do you say to that? There is no connection between the mob and the music business, he said. And Brian Ross said, at all? And Mr. Levy said, I don't believe so. <laughs> so you happened to see this interview on television in 1986. What were you thinking? Well, the first thing that hit my, my brain was how incredible this all is, that uh, Morris finally gets arrested for uh, racketeering. And, of course, what they get him on wasn't anything compared to what he actually did. But I, ha I felt... Good and bad. I mean, really, I felt... Of course, uh, Morris would top it all off by saying, uh, you know, they, they said, how did this happen? And he, was, he said, did they ask you to join the witness protection program? He says, uh, yeah, they did, but I wouldn't do it. He's letting his mob buddies know that he wasn't going to rat out. He said, why not? He said, it's unconstitutional. <laughs> <laughs> said, oh, this is good, it's unconstitutional. And that's what he said. So, uh, but I, I, as I'm watching him twist and turn, and by the way, he ended up getting indicted. He, he never thought he would. And sentenced to 10 years in prison, and he died of cancer uh, before he could serve any time. So he got him again. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, the strange part, I miss the guy in a strange left-handed kind of way. Uh, I know he, he would want to own this movie. I know that would never happen. But um, the, the strange part, though, like I said, is that if it wasn't for Morris Levy, uh, we wouldn't be here today. That's the truth. So the guy stole from you guys. He was a brutal murderer. You happen to know of murders that he was responsible for. He beat people senseless. And it, eventually you were released from the record company. Take mm -hmm. us to that day and what happened. Several years later, uh, this would be in 1972, Tommy Ryan, who was then the head of the Genovese family, in fact, this was Morris's partner who came in, who was in the roulette. These guys used roulette 
like a social club. They would come and hang out in the office. And so I, we'd see these people and, you know, uh, you know, we'd recognize them from TV. And, uh, you know, we'd, we'd meet somebody and we were introduced to somebody in Morris's office. And a week later, we'd see him, you know, being taken in handcuffs out of a Jersey warehouse. Isn't that the guy we just met? So um, Vito Genovese uh, died in prison in 1969 on Valentine's Day. Interesting, wasn't it? So they had meetings up at Roulette. Who was going to be the new head of the family? And it was Tommy Eberle. Tommy, Tommy Ryan was his, his alias. And uh, there was this huge gang war in 71. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up having to go to Nashville because Morris left town. And I was told that if uh, they couldn't get Morris, they were likely to go after whatever was making Morris money. And that's you, kid. And so I had to leave town. I went to Nashville. So I, I went through a year of hell with all this. And I swore I'd never go through. I'm, I'm out of here. So uh, finally it all calmed down in early 72. And Morris uh, came back. Uh, he and uh, one of his enforcers uh, uh, went to Spain and left all of us holding the bag at, at roulette. And so finally um, it, we thought it was all over. And then in 1972... I'm playing the Paramount Theater in Brooklyn, and about six blocks from where I'm playing, Tommy Eberle gets assassinated. This is June of 1972. So, uh, needless to say, things were crazy up at Roulette Monday morning. And uh, I, I had just had it. And I got pretty high, and I went up to Morris, and I just, we had a screaming match. And I said, I'm out of here. I, you know, freak, shoot me. I, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And, uh, uh, he said, you ain't going anywhere. And uh, I said, I'm gone. And I said, uh, that's it. And so, I mean, we that could have ended really badly, you know. And I, I finally, I, I left. I stormed out. And uh, it took me two more years of just not having, not recording anymore for Morris. Uh, he's kept putting out records uh, that were in the can. Mm-hmm. And it took me two years to destroy my credibility up there that I, w- I was ever going to have another hit and he finally let me go in 74 and so I went as far away as I could I went out to Berkeley I went to Fantasy Records out, on, out in San Francisco and where uh, John Fogarty and Credence had just uh, uh, left the label and I uh, went out and uh, immediately got another deal out there but I just wanted to get as far away from New York as I possibly could After Tommy finally got out of it at Roulette did he feel relief? Or did he miss it? The good Lord put him in the position of blessing me. I, I can't tell you why. One of these days, if I, if, if I, if I make it, I'm going to ask him what he was thinking. But that really is the truth, that, that uh, Morris sold all those records for me. So he's definitely a part of my life and my career. I, I, I just try to be fair. I, I just try to be fair about the whole thing. However, he was... Brutal human being. He was he was dark, and he couldn't get over being a gangster. He just couldn't. You know, he he'd still cut your heart out for five thousand dollars. You know what I mean? Even though he's a multi multi millionaire. Right. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it it answers my question. You can see why this will make a great film, a great Broadway musical. Let's get. Can back you imagine to- all the roulette guys singing in? <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be cool. <laughs> 
Let's talk about another song that people love, and the recording of it, as you mentioned before, was a little bit wonky. Mm-hmm. Uh, just recently, you performed it. Wonky? What is what wonky? Does that mean? You know, a little, a little odd. Oh, quirky, quirky, yeah. not traditional. Uh, you performed this for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame yeah. with an interesting cast of characters. It was. There were four generations of rock and rollers. This was last year at the uh, Hall of Fame show. On stage with me, of course, Joan Jett was being inducted. Induced <laughs> into, the hall, into the hall. And uh, so Joan and I did Crimson and Clover together. And also Dave Groh from Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. And, you know, D- Dave's great. And Miley Cyrus. Yeah. Four generations of rock and rollers singing it. Uh, I was just uh, blown. It was a magic moment. I met uh, Paul and Ringo. And, and from the, uh, you know, they, they, they were both there. And I uh, had never met either one of them before. So it was really a, a magic night. I, I, I'm gonna, can I tell you a story? I'm going yes. to tell on my manager. It's after the show. We're at, we're at, uh, a, a, we're at a party for uh, the, the Rolling Stone magazine. And uh, Paul was there, and we were talking and taking pictures and exchanging stories and so forth. Uh, all of a sudden, it's time to go over to Joan Jett's party. This is like 4 in the morning. He said, you know, I had brought the, a limo. He said, well, I'll just go with you. You've got the limo. I said, okay. So Carol Ross comes up and says, oh, Paul, I'm so sorry. There's just not enough room. <laughs> <laughs> what? Stevie Van Zant was with us and his wife, and we had several other people in the car. But, you know, we would have put them basically on the hood. <laughs> and so... And so uh, Carol's got to carry that load a long time, <laughs> carry that weight. And uh, this is going to be a good story to tell the Absolutely. grandkids. But, uh, Another Tommy James and the Shondells hit, Crimson and Clover, has a most interesting story surrounding it. Uh, Crimson and Clover was so important for us because, uh, for so many reasons, it was the first record that I produced by myself. It was also... It happened at a moment, we were out on the Hubert Humphrey campaign in 68, we were with him the entire time, and we wrote this song out on the road, and what happened was we had gone out on the road in, uh, with, with uh, uh, Hubert Humphrey in August after the convention, and in, we came back in November after the election, and during this period of time, the whole industry turned upside down. When we left, it was all singles acts, it was us and the Buckinghams and the Rascals and Oh, God, I'm leaving a lot of people out, but I mean all singles acts. We got back, this is 68, we got back 90 days later, and it was all albums. It was uh, Joe Cocker, it was uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, it was Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Led Zeppelin, all albums. And we were very, very, there was this mass extinction of groups right then that had singles. And so uh, we were so fortunate to have Crimson and Clover at that moment. Because Crimson and Clover allowed us to make that pivot from AM top 40 singles to actually selling albums, something Roulette had never really done. And so that was responsible for the rest of our career. And so for all those reasons, Crimson and Clover was important. So Morris had a big, uh, was making a big deal out of the release of the record. We had recorded the whole thing in five hours and... I was I had a rough mix that I had done basically with my elbows and uh, it was take, just a work tape. And I take it to Chicago 
uh, that Friday, and because we have a concert there, and I go up to WLS, up to John Rook, the PD, and I said, "You got to hear this. This is the first record that I'm, I've produced. Uh, it's coming out uh, next month. Uh, listen to it. Tell me what you think." So he plays it. He says, "Tommy, that's number one. That's a smash hit record." And Larry Lujak was it? Oh yeah. Uh, that he had just hired. He tapes my tape. I had no idea that he did this. It's just a rough mix. I mean, this is, you know, nothing. It's just, you know, the voice and the guitar. Right. And I, get, I go downstairs to get back in the car, and I hear, world exclusive on WLS. <laughs> Plays Crimson and Clover. And I'm going out of my mind because it, this can't happen. This can't happen. I'm going to get killed when I go back to roulette. And so I get back to Roulette, and Jim Stagg from WCFL, the other station in Chicago, had sent a death wreath uh, <laughs> on condolences of Tommy James, the death of Tommy James at, uh, at uh, WCFL radio. So Morris comes like, what the hell did you do? And, and I said, I, 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 well, then Red Schwartz, the promotion guy, calls up John Rook and tells him, he starts playing it, this, this, this rough mix, awful, terrible mix. Uh, starts playing it every 20 minutes. He's going to break the record. And he broke the record. And it turned out to be the biggest record I ever had. And the, the, the record we all know, Crimson and Clover, is that rough mix. I never was able to go back and find it. It has that echoey, it has an echoey sound. Does, and now but, it makes sense the way you're describing it. I was never it. able to go back and do all of the things I wanted to do to it. I think that was God's way of saying, You're finished with the record, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> But that's just the kind of stuff that happened to me at Roulette. Crimson Clover, what, what does this represent? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's funny. Uh, I, it, it was just two of my favorite words that I put together. Nothing, <laughs> nothing more profound than that. Um, they sounded profound. Yeah, it was, and, and the title came to me at, at, literally as I'm getting out of bed one morning. I had almost halfway dreamed it. That's how they happen something. You never know where a title is going to come from. I remember uh, matchbook covers. I remember R.C. Cola had one called Meet the Comer. We ended up writing a song called Meet the Comer. It was a religious song. Um, uh, you know, billboards. Well, Moni Moni. Moni Moni was uh, the Mutual of New York sign. I'm not kidding you. The uh, insurance company, which was outside my window, gave you, the, it gave you the time and the weather. I almost called it 315. <laughs> what about Crystal Blue Persuasion? It was actually one of the hardest records I ever made. And the reason is uh, I overproduced it. I just went crazy. We had drum, the full set of drums. We had guitars. We had uh, just a whole lot of stuff that was unnecessary. And when we got done with the, the record, I, you know, I spent about a month making the record. And we got done and I listened to it. I said, this is not the song we, we wrote. So I spent the next month unproducing it and pulling stuff out. And we ended up literally with a bongo drum, a tambourine, a conga, uh, an acoustic guitar doing little things, just a little shadow of a guitar, just, just little things. We just gutted the song 
until we called it atmospherics until we got it got the right atmospherics and, and uh, anyway we redid we're, we're I'm doing a new album right now and, and we redid uh, Crystal Persuasion um, acoustically and um, very interesting I we did that, that version of I Think Orlona, we did a version of Dragon Line, we did a version of uh, Crystal Blue Persuasion acoustically, and you know, so maybe we'll do that one. Jonathan Ash, Tommy James. In the remaining moments we have, and we will be taking some questions from you. I, I told Tommy before tonight, I said, listen, I want to do some word association with you. So some very brief, quick answers from you, Tommy, okay? When I say these words or phrases, what comes to mind? This is like a, a Rorschach test. Sort words, of. Right? So if I say ukulele, what do you think of? I think of, uh, it was my first instrument that I ever played. Uh, my grandfather bought me a, a ukulele when I was four years old, and that's what I started strumming when I was four years old. I had my ear in a radio speaker most of my life, and that was my first attempt to, to accompany my singing. Okay. It's a true story. All right. Uh, the Arthur Godfrey is what I think of. You remember Arthur? <laughs> yes. The Eugene Hotel. Eugene Hotel is a hotel my father managed I bought my first guitar when I was nine years old at the Eugene Hotel, and we were in Monroe, Wisconsin, and I could look across this square. It was a, like a village, and I could see the, the day after, uh, the, the morning after Elvis Presley was first on the Ed Sullivan Show with his guitar, suddenly two guitars popped up in the Monroe Music Shop, and I got one of them. So it was where I first actually, uh, the Eugene Hotel is where I first actually started playing guitar. The Wurlitzer. The Wurlitzer was a jukebox. It was the, uh, what was it, the 10, 15, with the, you know, with the bubbles, little dome, with the dome. It was an old jukebox, played 78s. It was in the Monroe Hotel bar. So I, I don't know if, I described it in the book when I first, to, for a kid of nine to be alone in a bar uh, was just incredible, uh, you know, with the machines, you know, with the, the bowling machine and the, uh, the jukebox to be alone with the jukebox was just unheard of. That's where I where I decided that I wanted to sing rock and roll. True story. This next one is the Sputnik Fizz. <laughs> the Sputnik Fizz was a drink my dad made up. Uh, he was really into the bar, so he uh, came up with all these exotic ideas. He was he managed the hotel. And he came up, that was right when the Russians put up Sputnik. This is in 57. Uh, my dad came up with this, and it was a drink, and he sold about 3,000 of them uh, called the Sputnik Fizz. I told this in my book. I don't know. Do you remember what the uh, proportions were? Uh, it had some gin. It had some uh, a lime. It had some, that's all I remember. Vermouth. I was, hey, I was 10 years old. Vermouth. Vermouth, yes. And cherry Coke. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I love the name of it. It's, it was so iconic of that time. Finally, if you could 
man-to-man, let all the stuff go, mm-hmm. sit down with Mr. Levy at this point. Oh, yeah. What would you like to say to him now? Oh, boy. Um, is it okay if we do this movie about you? Uh, uh, oh, I have a lot of things I'd like to say. Uh, I don't know if I'd mouth off to him or not. I don't think I would. I think I'd be fairly respectful. I think I'd probably end up saying, you know, why did you, why did you, why didn't you pay us? That would be one of the questions. But I think I would be pretty magnanimous in my conversation with him because we saw a lot of history together, we, at least in my life. We, we sold a lot of records together. We, we made it work. And the, and the funny part is, of course, you, like, like they say, the adage is true. You can't take it with you. And he died uh, worth about 80 to $100 million. And uh, a great deal of it was from what we did. But in the end, you've got to say it. I get to tell this story. I get to tell the story and I get to uh, say it succinctly that, uh, you know, I get to actually uh, make money from the movie and and my story. And uh, so I guess, I guess I'd probably shake his hand. On that note. Nobody ever asked me that. I'm so happy I did. (laughs) Following the music and the interview, Tom took questions from the audience and this final question prompted great reflection. Um, Tommy, thanks. I, I've just always been a huge fan, and oh, it was very you. clear to me tonight. You're also really a great guy, oh, and and you. really, it just, just great, really. Thank you, truly. So, I, I, my question is this: I can understand the love-hate relationship with Morris, but separate from him, who or what in your life had the most positive influence on you? Well, first of all, I'm a Christian, so I got to say the Lord, Jesus, and. Uh, I would also say my parents. I was an only child, and uh, I got the very best of everything they had. I don't have either one of them anymore. Um, it's a big hole in my life. There was always uh, a, 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 a lot of love in our place, and there was never arguing. And there, I, I, so many of my friends now say, you know, you're the strange one, Tom. You know, everybody's got these terrible stories. Um, but I uh, honestly, I have to say my, my family, and uh, I, I suppose I'd have to also say a couple of my teachers uh, and people that I really, really helped me grow up. Uh, one of the people who's had a lot of uh, 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 positive stuff, of course, uh, my, my wife, who I dearly love, who uh, is sick with MS, I feel like I'm a better person because I take care of her, and I feel like... Uh, the strange part is that MS has, uh, as spooky and as awful a disease as it is, has uh, made a better person out of me, and probably her too. We probably uh, have both grown. And my manager, Carol Ross, who is, is uh, that's no joke. She's really uh, uh, been devoted, and she is a powerhouse. She could get somebody elected president. That's the truth. She is such a pro. And I've been so lucky to have her since 1987. So uh, that's how I feel. Tommy James, one of the Sheen Center's recent guests at the Black Box Theater. I'm Valerie Smaldone.
Light from the Black Box is a podcast series produced by the Sheen Center for Thought and Culture, Valerie Smaldone Media Worldwide, and Culture Sonar.